On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we struggle through some Rufus technical difficulties. We're lucky enough to have Ted Knutson on, who is one of the smartest people we know about betting and stats and all of that. And then at the end, we rush through some college football stuff so I can get to my meeting. So with that, let's start the process. Bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a town with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system to break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast where Rufus and I are joined by one of our favorite guests, uh, definitely in the top 15 that we've ever had, uh, Ted Knudsen. Um, I think the last time we talked to you, we had this awesome podcast, but you were like in a like a coffee shop and like the barista wouldn't stop making cappuccinos. So it was it was incredibly loud. So now people will get to hear you in your um, purest self, right? Uh, I don't it, know. If- it might be really windy here, though. So I'm, I'm on an island in the Caribbean. Like, I yeah, see life is tough. Life is tough for former bookmakers, right? You live in the Caribbean and Curacao, blah, blah, blah. Let's talk a little bit. What we wanted to talk to Ted about mostly was sort of his company Stats Bomb, um, which is now making a big push into the U.S., formerly just in the U.K. But we'd love to talk a little bit first about your background, um, because I think people that listen to our show will find that, or the seven people that listen to our show will find that incredibly interesting, um, definitely more interesting than most of the content we have on this show. So first off, like, give us your background in sports betting, because um, it is a long, sorted past. Or not sorted. Maybe I'll go look that up. Sorted. Not sorted. Not exactly. sorted. Sorry. Sorry. Not, not sorted. All uh, right. So uh, like 2005 story, story or so. Past. Story. Yeah. Okay. 2005 started um, working with some, some friends of mine uh, back before uh, Ugia hit. So we used to be able to bet legally. Well, sort of so Ugia is the, the, the unlawful internet gaming, whatever, that just made gambling on the internet illegal go ahead yeah it made it impossible to move money between banks um but back in the in the golden days you used to be able to do that and uh so a couple of friends of mine started up their own little bet making operation and i came in a little later as the one of the data nerds behind it and so we were doing quite well and then Eugia hit and pinnacle shut off all of their business in uh 70 percent of their business in a single day and cashed it all out this is like i think january 9th 2007 and anybody who was betting on the internet at that time was like oh my god and so it just shut all the americans out so that was the point at which things really changed for me uh within three months i was working at, at pinnacle uh we kind of had had contact with the managing director so two of the three of our group uh started working for for pinnacle sports and the first year that I was there, I think they lost about $6 million. Uh, but then by the time I left eight years later, uh, they were profitable to tune about 80 to 100 million, uh, again. And we completely revamped like Pinnacle's product lines, but also, you know, the technology behind it. We live betting, uh, in kind of soccer, uh, NBA, uh, American baseball. We, we pushed every line for baseball as well. And then. I think NFL was probably the hardest one that we did, uh, and in basketball as well. So yeah, that was kind of my, my, my foray there. And, uh, then 2014, my wife was like, it would be one, great. One, one quick question, Ted. What was your role in all of that? Were you a bookmaker, or a trader, business op? What do you, what, what was your, all of that? Yeah, I, I had like all of the hats. So I was a manager of R&D. I was head of soccer, head of growth sports, which would include sort of like the, you know, hockey, volleyball, etc. cetera, uh, revamped the tennis department, uh, built the live department from the ground up. Uh, so all, all of those things at, at various points in my, my eight years there are things that I did. Have you uh, updated your LinkedIn to include all of this or no? Yeah. I, thankfully, I don't need to update my LinkedIn. I, I just Whoa, kind of... big guy. I don't need to update my LinkedIn. Okay, sorry. And then not you all, moved on not to... all of us can be VP of startups at, uh, at some small company called Microsoft. Ted, uh, most valuable company in the world. No big deal. No, maybe, maybe <laughs> we have to see who last updated theirs. That's the, who gets the most. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so then you moved on to. So there's one more story behind the gambling side of things, which is that in 2014, my wife was like, Hey, it'd be great if you didn't work every single weekend when we have two, two small children. 
which uh, I, I felt was, you know, not an unjust request. So I went to work for a guy named Matthew Benham, uh, who owned two soccer clubs, uh, one named Brentford. At that time, they'd just come from League One in England, and another small team called Midtjylland in Denmark. Uh, the reason why I mention this is because, one, I did a lot of quantitative work on the, the soccer side, on player evaluation and styles and stuff like that. But two, Matthew Benham made all of his money from running a sports betting hedge fund uh, previously. And so that was how he had enough money to afford these soccer teams. So I got to sit alongside of his hedge fund uh, while they were trading and, and moving bets into the world. Uh, and, and it was the opposite side of the stuff that I'd done at Pinnacle, but very interesting and a great place to learn. Got it. Um, and then what brought you to what you're doing now? And tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. So 2016, uh, the project slowed down a little bit. I was looking for my next job. And I, was gonna, I was gonna work for my next team. Uh, we were doing Moneyball. We had some success. We won a title with Michelin. Brentford had started to, to churn in good profits on player sales. Like all this made sense to me. But the soccer world was a little slow in, in moving at that time. So I started building tools for my next job. Uh, and then within a couple of months, I became very clear that it wasn't just myself that needed this and, you know, my next job at a soccer team. Everybody in the whole space could use this in sort of as, as the, as the sport turned toward Moneyball. And so started Stats Bomb the company. And within a year of starting Stats Bomb the company using somebody else's data, it also became really clear that we wanted to build our own better data. And I know this is something that Jeff believes in strongly. Rufus as well. He's a, an early investor in, in Stats Bomb. He just pumped the fist because apparently we've talked about valuations recently. Um, but better data yields better predictions. And it's also like a, it's a huge edge if you have better information than your, uh, your opposition. Now, obviously, for people who are interested in betting the process, this is something that you probably care about. So 2018, we launched our own data in soccer, and we now have a few of some very, <clears throat> I would say, profitable hedge funds that use our data, as well as 125 teams in the, the team space in the world of soccer around the world. Uh, and then it comes to the next thing that, that I'm kind of here and, and back to talk about, which is something that Rufus has actually pushed really hard on. He told me, I think a couple of years ago, that American football data was shit. And we should really take a big whack at that. As you think about now, kind of like the lens of your career, where now we kind of set the groundwork of who Ted Knutson is, and and I think there's lots of questions that we would have for you. I think the first one, and let's let's go back to your sports betting world, is a little bit of have you seen this like Jason Robbins statement that just came out with DraftKings, where he basically said like he doesn't want. What's your take on that statement? So he, the CEO of DraftKings came out and basically said that they don't want anyone that's trying to make a profit. They only want recreational betters. And this is something that Rufus and I have talked a lot about. It's like the same philosophy by which casinos don't want card counters in their casinos because they believe that gambling is an entertainment uh, vehicle. It's like uh, losing is like the price of going to a movie it's entertainment and if you aren't losing then it's just like you're sneaking into a movie um what's your take on what what jason robbins said i think it's interesting that the masks are off a little bit like they're they're not kind of keeping this low-key and trying to disguise it as much as, the, as when they first started i think it's unfortunate that like sports betting can be two ways right like you could have the entertainment based books that are not interested in having winners you can't sell yourselves as that like hey have a good time uh, but there's this whole other swath that says that, look, I want to do this for fun. I'm smart. I don't want to be kicked out of somewhere. And maybe there's more of a financial element like, you know, Jeff Yass. I know we were on a podcast with, with him at, at Sloan uh, back in the day, and he really cares about that type of stuff. I think the legislation should offer both of those. And I think that's one of the, the big holes in the, in the industry right now is that these things don't exist. You only have uh, the, the legal bookies that don't want to have anybody smart actually put a bet down on a game. Uh, I think Rufus may have said this or Haralabob may have said this uh, in response to all of this, which is that like, just don't have the same cap for everybody. Like Rufus can put down 500 in a golf match and then anybody else can put down 500 in a golf match. That way you're not segregating by smart people. You're not telling people they can't win. You're just constraining a little bit of the potential losses of the book. Right. Like no professional is really going to spend that much time trying to get down in a market where they can only get 500 down. So you're basically just already constraining sort of like who, what your market is or what your target market is. So it depends on how Pinnacle gets taxed. Like if they're taxed off of their profits, because, you know, if you're, if you're putting up a 2% margin or an eight, eight cent line, 
which you would do on, say, uh, an NBA uh, NBA spread, like you can't have a 51% of revenue sort of taxation. Like you have to only get taxed on your on your profits, like a normal company would. Uh, so you know the the gambling legislation sort of prevents them from from being involved in that space. If you tax them normally, they'd do great, and it'd be like going to Walmart, but for betting. You'd have all of the best lines in the world. They would be cheaper than anywhere else. And you'd have plenty of, of volume to be able to get down how much you want because they'll keep winners around and they'll just adjust their prices based off of action. Right. So that makes sense. Um, and I mean, like from what you've seen and now you, you're spending much more time in the U.S., have you been paying attention to the U.S. market at all? Or is it not that interesting to you just because of everything that's that's going on? I do pay attention. Uh, I don't pay attention on like a state by state basis. But I, and in fact, some cases I'm I'm surprised by how small the the volume is given like how much demand I think there is. Uh, I think that there are all sorts of missteps that they're making in order to make this as, as kind of widely available as possible. Mobile betting, stuff, stuff like that. You can see that there's just a lot of special interests that are spending a ton of money to sculpt this legislation in ways that aren't the best for the customer, but probably are, are best for the bookmakers or people that are taking kickbacks. I, I think that's interesting because I don't know if that's true from a standpoint of best for the bookmakers long term, right? And and that's ultimately the thing, right? Like, I think that there's a lot of short-sighted, um, you know, like one of the reasons that people make bad decisions is that they they think very short term. And I think right now you're seeing that in a lot of legislations where there's like this sort of cash grab happening. And I would say ultimately the problem right now is I think the bookmakers aren't thinking long term. Like, do you think that someone like uh, DraftKings right now, if you had a chance to invest um, now, let's say, obviously, you do have a chance to, they're public, but do you think they're a buy or a sell where they are right now? Well, I think the correction in the market has been massive and unequivocal. I, I think that people thought they were hugely overvalued sort of six months ago, and we've seen you know, Genius, Radar, DraftKings, et cetera, lose a ton off of their, their stock value. The question is whether, yeah, I mean, people feel like it's a winner-take-all market. I don't think that that has ever happened in Europe unless it's been legislated to be that way. Some places have a, a state-run bookie, and that's the only one you can bet at. In the United States, competition it seems to be paramount. So I think there's there's openings for this to, to happen. I wouldn't buy them right now. I still think that there's a bit of correction left, uh, but I think that over time, maybe this is not too far off what makes sense. That said, they are hemorrhaging money to get customers in and to lock up you know, rights and stuff like that. So I, I think that it's a complicated investment. If you right now, like, and so that if you think about this idea of the money that they're spending on, um, on you know, the, the customer acquisition and ultimately, like the switching costs, potentially, like we were talking about switching costs and someone was telling me that switching costs is much higher than I would think it is because of the KYC stuff involved and how hard it is to get, you know, an account open. Um, but assume the switching costs, I, I guess the switching cost is a big, a big question, right? Like how, how, how hard is it to switch? Um, I, I think one of the things that that's interesting to think about is if you're a Jason Robbins and you are excited to make sure that you have losing betters you run out of money at some point right or you it's not fun to lose like the entertainment is is you keep losing and that that's a bad situation but i i guess like how do you how would you think about and i know you're not DraftKings, you don't think about that but like how would you balance this idea of trying to profit off of someone while keeping them around as long as possible I don't. That's never been a business I've been involved in. And so, like, it's not a problem that I'm interested in solving because I think it's a bit bullshit on, on my end. But, you know, I understand that these guys have a business they need to run, and this is the their business model. I lived in a place that had a very different business model. I've also seen someone like Bet365 have multiple business models inside of the same company. They run a different business with different pricing in Asia or in other places than they do off of their straight bookie in, uh, in the U.K. or European markets. Okay, tomorrow, uh, some private equity firm comes and says, hey, we want to buy Stats Bomb, but as part of that, we want to make you CEO of DraftKings because we're, we're doing some sort of consolidation. What are the first three things that you do? Oh, that's it's tough for me to figure out what their business model looks like. I understand how to build a bookie from the ground up. Well, that so way, like, you gotta the, figure the, the idea, right, is that you have now – you have to, I don't, 
I think in this equation, they're doing this because they want to change their business model, right? They don't they don't say to you, Ted, here are the keys to the car because they're happy with what they're doing. They're doing it because they want. So your job as this turnaround CEO is to figure out like, what do you, um, what are the first, you know, like, what do you need to do? Like, what are the assets that you have? I would say, right, the biggest asset is like state access, right? They have access to markets, right? That's the asset, right? So like, with that in mind, have them having done a lot of that hard work, what are what are the next, you know, three things that you do to, when you take over this job? I'm excited about product development. I always have. Like, I developed some great gambling products at Pinnacle that changed how, how people kind of bet. And so I want to take a good hard look at what they have across the board. Are there ways that we can take on the ideas that don't kick out the winners, like the Harala Bob sort of like same state for everybody? Can you figure out how to loosen things up? Can you adjust your lines to make it so that, you know, you can keep people around so that it feels more egalitarian? Because I think, actually, if you champion this as one of the big bookies, people get excited. And it doesn't really impact your 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 bottom line that much if you've got the models on board, if you've got the trading department on board that can adjust based off of this. But I think that, you know, talent, the right kind of... Well, some hiring, right? Who are the first people you would hire then? Like, it sounds like you would you would need to hire some people. I would need to hire some people, yeah. I, I have some people that I've worked with for a long time in the industry that I think are, are some of amazing talent. Do any of them work in the U.S.? Uh, not right now. <laughs> and not in, or, or if they work in the U.S., they don't work in bookies. I think those two things are true. Right. So you, you, you would hire, you'd probably blow out the entire staff, start with a new staff. You'd work on product development, and by product development, that's like literally new bet types. Is that right? Partly new bet types, partly adjusting what you offer to make it easier to be more egalitarian and let winners stick around. You do want volume increasing. You want the prices to get better, uh, but you've got to have the right business model and the understanding how to win even in a more challenging space. Okay, what's what's the third thing that you would do? I would look at how to make, how to help all of the states make mobile betting the default. I think that is super important. Like that's how you want to bet, right? You want to bet on your phone. You want to watch a game, be there, bam. Like you want to be financially in a stadium and be able to do that. I think that is is hugely important and it needs to exist everywhere. Would you do anything with like UI slash experience? Because I think that's an interesting one to me where if you think about going back to the mobile experience, right? Like, there are no sports betting out. I mean, I don't use any of the new ones, so I, I shouldn't say, but I, I would assume that no one is following games on their sports betting app. Meaning like I that experience of like checking things on your phone and the dopamine hit of like seeing a, a scoring update, that's not happening on your mobile app. Okay, so that, that's where I'm talking about new products, right? Like you want these things to be sticky. You want people to be excited about being on your platform to not only bet, to watch the game, to potentially put down other bets. Uh, that that's a product development stuff that I 100% agree with. And yeah, you do want it to be mobile. It's it's just the way of the world. Right. Makes sense. Um, okay, let's switch gears to Stats Bomb now, which we've talked about um, a little bit. And and if you guys notice, Rufus is pretty silent during this because he's having all sorts of internet problems, which is part for the course these days. Um, but but he's back. He's he's on. He's he's back. Um, yeah, my so, my my one. Gig of my gigabyte or whatever, whatever the big million thing is, internet like somehow is flamed out. It's a Google Byte. I think it's a Google Byte. There um, you go. When uh, okay, so if you, let's go back to Stats Bomb and and the premise behind Stats Bomb, which which I find fascinating, obviously, is if there is like a pyramid of succeeding in analytics, there's I always talk about there being three layers, right? There's data at the bottom, there's analytics on the second level, and there's implementation on the third level. And on the bottom, data, if you can create a data moat, right? Uh, data that no one else has, uh, data that you only have access to, whatever, uh, that that is the best way to create an advantage. So that's kind of like the premise of StatsBomb, right? That's right. And the other premise that I think kind of gets overlooked is that unlike a lot of the data companies that have organically developed data specs in the space because they want to serve media or this is what we think the sport wants to track, we design data. 
And we design it with all sorts of features inside of it that make it much better than what exists out there and make it much better for predictive power in the future. So when, when you go, go back to this idea of, of creating data that no one else has, and, and if you take the soccer example, which is where you guys got your start, right? T tell me a little bit about like the exact process by which you guys are able to get proprietary data for a sport that millions and millions of people are watching the same sort of feed that you are. So the first place we started was like, what do you care about in the game? And so this is where like sport expertise and analytics expertise lends itself back into data creation and design. We did something that started to take away a lot of the proxies. Like, if you worked with these sports data sets, you know, like, plenty of things are proxies for what's actually happening on the field. It's just what we can collect. So, for a soccer example, we knew where the shot was taking place, and that was, and then we knew, like, some of the information about the buildup, but we didn't know where the defenders were. We didn't know where the goalkeeper was. And so, by starting to collect that stuff, and in some cases, you need to use technology like computer vision to do it, then we were able to then have much better accuracy in our expected goals numbers which then tells you sort of the quality of the chance and like how likely it is to be scored, et cetera. The same is true for uh, a metric like pressure. Pressure is an important part of soccer. It's an important part of how you defend. But no one was tracking that information, even though we knew the sport cared about it. So we just decided that we were going to build that into a collection app and spend time collecting it and proofing it, making sure it was right. And now it's used everywhere to try and find better players. Got it. Um, so does computer vision, like one of the things that you were able to do is actually before computer vision became a thing, you actually had people like watching video, right, and tracking and you created like train them up to do this, et cetera, right? But now that computer vision's there, do you think you have less of an, a fewer of an advantage or more advantage or same more. advantage? No, we have more. Like we just keep layering in new features when the computer vision and the automation allows us to save time. And that means that we spend that time adding additional depth to the data or additional features. And the features secret sauce is before. understanding like how to layer on more stuff onto that what, with real knowledge of what matters. That's correct. And how do you get that knowledge? <laughs> uh, so in, in American football, which is a sport that I, I didn't do the work in. Is that the uh, round one the last... or the oblong? Uh, yes, yeah, it's the egg-shaped one. Egg-shaped. So that, that's, that that's the one where I've, I, I've spent uh, most of the last four months embedded with a, a college football team to try and learn what they care about, what their workflows are like, what the processes are like, and how we can build better tools for them to analyze their opponents and also to be able to look at players. Got it. And um, what are some of the insights that you've had in American football so far in terms of, you know, what you've learned from this football team that we won't talk about the name of? The most overwhelming thing is that these guys actually love information and they are not against data. They don't give a shit about whether your stats and data comes from, you know, some provider or anything like that. They don't, they don't care about not using data. They want information that helps them win games. They want information that helps them make better decisions to, to profile opponent tendencies. And so there's just this immediate pushback against the common narrative that says, that, oh, football coaches are really skeptical. Football coaches don't care. They just don't have tools. They, they do not have good tools to use. And so if you build them good tools, they will use all this stuff and they will get better and they will make better decisions. So like, that's the first thing that I learned. Give me an example of a tool, right? Because like what, what you're saying is counter to what I think a lot of us would believe, which is that football coaches, I don't even know, see if you saw, like there was a recent thing where Eric Eager was talking about like running and why running is, you know, what sort of running versus passing. And then Mitchell Schwartz went on and said this whole thing about, you know, grit and determination and taking another team's will and that kind of thing. So it sound very football guys ish. Um, like you, you think this tools thing is, 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 so give me an example of a tool, right? Is, is it, is it just making it easier for them to, to learn or what? So I'll give you, I'll give you two examples. And I actually want to say that I like both Mitchell and Eric Eager's work. I, I actually respect both of them. So I kind of understand where they're coming from. I think Mitch's, Mitchell's uh, argument falls down a little bit when you look at how many times coaches have been wrong about how the game operates across all different sports that you don't have to trust them that much anymore. You can go back to questioning things from first principles. But to give you two examples of tools that are starting to change the game. In give, me, ways. give us a couple, by the way, I, I agree with you, but give us a couple real salient examples of coaches like not understanding things from a first principles standpoint. Well, and can you tell us what first principles are? 
<laughs> go no, go principle is like let's let's not that that train's left the station. Go Google it. It's from physics. It's, it sounds like <laughs> one of these business buzzwords. It's not a business was, buzzword, dude. It's like I, a well, it's a it's science a buzzword. buzzword. Okay. We like science. Is gravity right? first is gravity first principle. <laughs> is gravity inarguable? That's a theory. Well, I mean, first principles yeah. is like reasoning, right? It's reasoning from something that's inarguable. Like Rufus will always have trouble with his inar- internet. That is inarguable. I mean, <laughs> if, if you want to you go down that rabbit hole, I'll say the only thing that actually exists is the mind, my mind. So everything else, that's, I mean. But Ruf, Rufus, Rufus anyway, is a dog's name. That is inarguable. By the way, Jeff, that is my new license plate, by the way. So I heard, I heard. Anyway. Okay, Ted, sorry. Sorry. So two examples of tools that also go back to giving you examples of how things are, are changing. One is quite simply having a model around should you go for it on fourth down, right? And this is a point where coaches got it wrong all the time, all the time. And and they, they had a sense of it. We should do this. This is the risk reward, et cetera. And then you saw the smart groups start to use the these sort of profile models of win, uh, win probability, et cetera. And they started going for fourth down more and more and more. And once people understood it and they understood the tools, they started to adopt it. And you look at fourth down go for it rates in, in the NFL, and it's a it's a whole it's a totally different world. It's not even close. Do we agree with yeah, this? But it's taken forever. Can, can, can this, I ask right? a question? Can we compare this to like I mean, it's like they had a sense, but they wouldn't know on the margin what was good or what wasn't. But I mean, you wouldn't expect like a front office to say, Oh, you know, we're not gonna have a player evaluation model. Like, you know, we just know what a good deal is. Well, Essentially they're flying by the seat of their pants and their intuition and their knowledge of the game. Hold on a sec. Let's go back to this fourth down example, because I think it's a very good example that everyone understands. What is the tool that you would give a coach, right, that would make them compelled to go for it more than fourth down? Because you hear on broadcast now, oh, so-and-so has a card or so-and-so has a sheet, you know, and like they they talk about it. Like I think there's uh, some college coach, they always talk about him having a sheet or a card or whatever, like, but surely that is not the tool you're talking about. What What is the well, tool? Well, the, mo- the, the card is derived from the model, right? Okay. It's the same thing. So in blackjack, you understand the probabilities. You understand when you should. But are you, you saying that the model needs to be better and that's the problem? Like, I'm just trying to understand what you're saying, like better it didn't tools, exist what before. that means. It didn't exist before. I'm giving you an example of a tool that has changed the game that is based around data and probabilities. Okay. So, so this is not necessarily what we're producing. We're not producing a better win probability model. I'll get to the things that we're producing. We can produce one in the future based off of the extra factors that we follow. But I was giving you a base example that tells you how data and information is changing how the sport operates. And the coaches are interested in this. And we've seen an uptick of coaching going for it on fourth down across a widespread of coaches now. They understand that they were wrong before, and now they want to have these models in their hands so they can make better decisions and, and keep win probability sort of in their hands as opposed to giving it away. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, so I, I guess I'm just maybe hung up on the word tool, and maybe that's maybe I'm like too hung up on that because like ultimately I, the, 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 the statement that you made that you and I are debating now and maybe too pedantically um, is is the idea that the reason that analytics or data has not been more accepted in sports is because coaches have not had the proper tools to use them, right? And so I'm fine with that, but I need to understand what tools means because, you know, the, the Romer paper, right, uh, on fourth downs was 20-some years ago, right, that that thing was published, right? And so that was the first, like, the seminal work on on going forward on fourth down. And, and the paper then cannot be considered a tool because you would say, like, it had, didn't have that much of an impact. What was the tool that was then given to coaches that made it all of a sudden start having an impact? No, I, I think these are two different things. This is your implementation question, right? Like, why were coaches starting to implement this more and more? And sometimes, in some cases, it's it's social prevalence of this idea that it is a positive and they're forced to question it because before social media didn't exist, uh, especially 20 years ago. And so there was no pressure to do that. But this is kind of beside the point. This is actually sort of far off where I wanted to go with this. I want to give you an example of a common tool now, which is a model. Like in trading, we use lots of different models to predict things. So this is a a tool that I I would describe as something useful for predictive power of if we go for it more in these situations, then we will actually be able to win more games. Got it. Okay, so um, How about a right tool? now in terms of 
Go ahead. Okay, so we collect we collect data on on all the route patterns that that guys will run, and we've been in these meetings, and the coach is like, "Hey, I would love to see this guy's route tree in eleven personnel, so like one tight end, one running back on third and long, uh, when he lines up here or here or here." And that type of information is a visual set of information. It's got a ton of filters because football is the most contextual game in the whole world. And so that's actually one of the difficulties around it. But if you're collecting the right data, you're able to see that type of information. Another thing you'd be able to see inside of the new data and the new tools is we have those route patterns, and we actually have where the guy caught the ball on his body. So now we know on these types of throws, he's always throwing behind him. Is this something we can work on in the offseason? Is this something that we need to coach him through? Is this something we just have to accept? I don't know. But this comes back to sort of like player development work, which happens in college. It even happens in high school, stuff you work in the summer, et cetera, or stuff you really care about in terms of drafting a player. And is this guy the most accurate that he can be? Or are these routes that are in our offensive coordinators uh, system going to be very problematic for him to hit on a regular basis in stride? Makes sense. Rufus, you had a question? No, I think it's interesting because, like, I'll say the the data that, like, Kate and I have done some consulting um, before, and the data, like, it was great data that we had access to that wasn't available elsewhere, but it was like, it was not nearly, it, it was it was not nearly that level of detail. Okay, so if if we if we go and we move into sort of like the the, you know, the the world of what you guys are gonna um, do in the U.S. You're also doing basketball, is that right? Like, how do you how do you anticipate? You, you can't say you're also doing basketball. What are you doing? You leave the things. Oh, I, like didn't was, I didn't know that was stealth. All right, we can get that edited out. It's okay. I don't. I don't even mind. We we basketball is a thing that is a little aspirational for us, but we've hired some very talented basketball people to work at our company. Oh, that's not even public. Who you hired? I, it is public. Who we hired is public. He's working on American football right now. Oh, got it. <laughs> Well, I mean, that would be obvious then if anyone knows him that you would eventually do basketball, right? That's, that's I understand like a, smart person, but we don't have to say this publicly. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. I can't go believe Daryl is moonlighting for you guys. That's so cool. Anyways. <laughs> All right. So uh, we we got to get finished up because you got to go. Rufus, do you have any last questions for Ted? No. I okay. do not. I do not. All right. How about this, Ted, as a last question? We've been talking about this on the podcast because um, the Action Network did a uh, sports betting Hall of Fame, and they're putting a bunch of people in their sports betting Hall of Fame. Who would be your top three people you would put in a sports betting Hall of Fame? Oh, God. So I have this dream of either writing a book or convincing Michael Lewis to write a book about the original computer group. Um, and that includes Henry, who was the managing director at, at Pinnacle. Uh, he's He's probably number one. I think he changed the betting world for, as a better when they used to run as their own syndicate. Like these guys got down a million dollars back in the time when you could only phone people and like the internet didn't exist. They got down a million dollars on a game. Um, so he, he's probably really high. Um, Billy Walters is another one. I think he's really high. And then you could argue about the third one. I probably don't even know the space in the history of, of current times well enough to, to give you a correct answer on that one. So Rufus probably. Definitely not. Look, if, if if golf is a sport, then you know Rufus is is there in a heartbeat. So golf is debating whether golf is a sport or not. Poor Rufus. All right, we'll we'll let you go, Rufus. Do you do you it's actually more, have enough bandwidth to do talk a little bit of uh, NFL and college? I do, I do. I went up to the rooftop lounge where there's nice Christmas music playing in the background. Ted, thanks for joining us. We'll have you on again in the off season. Um, maybe we'll see each other at Sloan or something like that, and we can have you on live then. Um, and hopefully it won't be so disjointed and we can make things work better. Thanks, guys. Always good to talk to you. Good luck on your, your bets as you go into the playoffs. Thanks. Appreciate it. So Rufus Peabody sitting on his roof. Oh, Do you have your Jeff. computer in front I, of I you? Don't know, I don't know how the I, – I have, like, the Internet has been so so good here, and then it just – yeah. I don't know what's going on. I have the green okay. light. It's got the green light, and it don't. It's it says the network can't connect. Okay. Well, let's let's just do a little bit of college football. Um, let's definitely because obviously do. we got some carnage last weekend. We talked Wait, about we, it. So did and, we? Right. Like I had a I had my worst uh, college football weekend. I had a good NFL weekend, but it didn't make up for it. I don't. Do you remember what were our specific? 
I don't remember what our specific, what specific picks I gave out. So I never, and I, I didn't go back and look, listen. So I don't know exactly what, um, I know that we, I gave out New Mexico State, which, or New oh, Mexico. I don't, care, I don't care. I don't care about the picks, honestly. Oh. Like we know we give out negative EV picks. We tell people that we caveat that people. We're not like Zilbo. <laughs> we don't have a winning long-term documented record. Uh, we, what I want to talk about is the, the national championship, right? Which is, you know, fascinating. You, you, you want to talk about your Georgia 10 to 1 ticket, huh? No, it's fascinating. It's, 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 it's fascinating that we, whatever, three weeks ago, a month ago, when we tried to predict the top four, felt relatively confident what we're doing. And there, there's a chance that both of us will only have one correct in that top four. And that's Georgia. Right. Yeah. I think I'm in a slightly, I think we're probably in about the same position, to be honest. Um, do you think that there's any way that Alabama loses that game now and still makes it? Probably, right? Yeah, I think there has to be. And I think there was before. I, I really think there was before. I think the fact that how they played against Auburn actually hurts their case. That's my, that's my point, Rufus. But, so I think it's, I think you, you said you think the chance is better now in a way, but the carnage around. No, no, no. Them, I'm saying I think the chance is better. worse. I'm oh, saying okay. now the chance is worse. I thought, yeah. I, I thought before the Auburn game, there was oh, there was a very good chance that they would, but they look so like that like beating Auburn and basically like four or whatever overtimes that that's a bad look, right? Yeah, no, it's it's not a good look. I agree with that. So the question, I mean, a, a lot of people brought up the problem, the fact that you know if Georgia plays Alabama and let's and Georgia wins and then Alabama like becomes the number four seed, they would just play again back to back, and and the optics like that wouldn't be as good of a that wouldn't be great. Like, this is supposed to be entertainment. This is about money, right? I mean, that's like... Well, but don't you for, feel like... Is, don't isn't you that the first, like Cincinnati the first principle like, here? The first principle here is they want an entertaining product that makes money. Is that correct? Is that a good first principle? No, we could argue that. We could argue that the that the, the committee has, like, scruples and cares most about the goodness of the student athlete. And, I mean, we'd probably be lying ourselves in the face, but we could argue that. I guess we could. Okay. So, so it's yeah. arguable is my point. It's, but it will, right. So Georgia would play Alabama like back to back on back to back occasions, which I think that did that happen in the playoff one other year? I think it might have been with, uh, not Georgia and Alabama, but I feel like there might have, there was a rematch. There was definitely a rematch at some point. So, um, I mean, I think what it's going to be interesting to see if, if, I mean, Cincinnati's a 10 point favorite, 10 and a half. I, you know, I'll claim some responsibility for for driving that line up a little bit. I like Cincinnati there. Um, but good to know. Good to know. Well, I I make the number. Um, my my personal number is 15 before regressing to the market. So whoa. Yeah, not a believer in that Houston team. Um, I'm down at nine and a half and ten. Um, so if you can get a ten, I think that's a good bet. But but if if so Cincinnati if they hold serve, um, what? 87% chance of doing it or so. Um, they're in, I think. I think we can save. Well, well. So wait, how about this scenario? Better, though, they're in if they're in unless Alabama wins. And if Oklahoma, the question is, what happens? Like we don't know the gap between Cincinnati and Oklahoma State, do we? Well, that's so. So isn't that the question, right? If Alabama wins, Oklahoma State wins, and Michigan wins, and Cincinnati wins. Will Cincinnati get squeezed out in that? Alabama in that? wins, Oklahoma. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think a lot of it is probably is going to depend on some style points potentially. I don't. I, don't, I mean, I know that's kind of a cop out answer, but but if so, if Cincinnati I wins. If, if, I think Oklahoma State has to win convincingly, of course, and Cincinnati has to struggle to win. Um, right. It's. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see because I feel like the committee with the rankings they've already set have kind of anchored themselves to something. Whereas I, I do think, I mean, I don't think normally before the season we'd be saying a group of five or a group of four team has a chance to, or five, however many, I don't know how many groups there are. Um, I don't think they have, they wouldn't have a chance to beat a one loss conference champion from, uh, from a, you know, power five conference, um, unless maybe it's the ACC. Okay. So let, let me paint another scenario for you then. But wait, wait this... really quickly, Jeff, though, do you think that the fact that Cincinnati is four right now, Makes it harder for the committee to 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 have Oklahoma State leapfrog them versus if they ne- if they never had to publicly put out a rating in the past. No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I think I think it does. Well, so here's here's yeah. Um, I don't I don't think so because I, I think I think we're on this one. I think that 
probably Cincinnati and Oklahoma State are very close right now. And I do think style points this weekend will matter, right? I, I think that if, I, I think that if Cincinnati wins convincingly, like they've done the last couple of weeks, I think that they will, they will be in, right? And if Oklahoma State kills Baylor, which, I mean, anyways, I, I, I don't know. So who's the better team, Jeff? Who do you think is the better team? Like just, just team quality. You tell me, you do numbers. I don't know. I'll tell you. And you know what? The rating, the difference in ratings is about the same. If you're, if you're doing no priors saying, let's just build, like, let's just use what happened this season. Um, and it's Oklahoma State's the better team by, um, by two points with no priors and with priors by, um, like 1.8 points, like 20.7, 18.9. Yeah. Okay. So well, that's, you can't argue with, can't argue with math. Maths. Yeah. Okay, so one, Cincinnati's one, better than the, Notre Dame, though. Well, Notre Dame. Do, I mean, do you think Brian Kelly leaving Notre Dame hurts them in this? Probably. I don't think they legitimately have a shot, or I don't think they should have a shot. They haven't played that well. I mean, this year I have them rated number. Um, they're, they're number nine. I've Cincinnati number eight. But if you if you go with no priors, they're even lower. They're number uh, they're number ten with no priors, whereas Cincinnati's number six with no priors. So, yeah, yeah. I. I They've, I, they, they do have the hardest schedule this year, but they don't, I mean, their marquee win, I guess the best wins against Wisconsin and Wisconsin's a really good team. And I feel like they're not, but they're not getting credit for that because Wisconsin now has like three, like four losses, I guess, even though I have Wisconsin as the number six team in the country. All right. So, so this is the scenario where Mich- where Alabama gets in. Oklahoma State loses, Oklahoma State or, or Cincinnati lose, right? One of the two of them lose. And Alabama. And we, we agree that a two loss Alabama team gets in over a two loss Ohio State team. Uh, yes. Clearly. Yes. I think Ohio State is, is cooked. I think they're toast. Yeah. So Michigan wins, let's say Oklahoma State or Cincinnati, one of the two lose. Alabama loses in a very close game to Auburn, I'm to Georgia, right? In that scenario, the committee is saying Alabama is in on the strength of what they've done so far this season and then also on the strength of a close game against the by far number one team in the country. And therefore, they are number three, right? And the whoever, the Oklahoma State-Cincinnati team limps in at four because they've always been perceived to be the weaker team. And, you know, then Michigan is two. I think I think that's a really easy scenario to, to see happening um, if – it, you know, if this plays out in in this scenario, were you saying that Oklahoma State and Cincinnati both win? No, I'm saying one of them, one of them loses. One of them loses. But you think you think they would put Alabama ahead? I think they might do it just so they don't have to have Alabama, Georgia in back to back weeks. That, that's right? fine. But that's I also I also I also don't think it's like a stretch to say that. Right. If they're if they're essentially putting Alabama in on the strength of a close loss to Georgia, you could arguably say that that close loss to Georgia is more valuable, right, than uh, Cincinnati beating a Houston or Oklahoma State beating a Baylor. Right. I mean, if, you, if you're judging it that way, it's like, well, relative to expectations, like relative right. That's to, what I'm saying. Like, like, you, like if you're grading them on a curve relative case. to the quality of the opponent, which they, you know, technically, I mean, they should be doing, then yes, I, I, I'm with you on that. The question is, it's just in the past the committee has viewed a loss so negatively. So – Whose position would you rather be in? And then we'll close this out and do a couple quick, quick, quick picks because I got to be done in eight minutes. So I, I'd still, I, I would rather be in Cincinnati's position. I would think. Okay. Cool. All right, let's move on. Did you, so, do you have any other college games that you like besides uh, Houston? I mean, besides Cincinnati. Sorry. I do. I do. Um, I have. Um, I like San Diego State. That's my biggest play of the week. Oh, I figured you would like them. And I actually, I mean, I'll, I can tell you the bets I've made. Um, I'm not sure what's still good. But, I mean, Cincinnati, I took, uh, I bet over, let me pull up, I should pull up my down best screen here. Um, I took over in Georgia, Alabama um, early at 49 and a half. Oh, it's back down to 49 and a half. It was up, went up to 50 and a half, and it's back down to 49 and a half. Um, and, Jeff, this, I, I find this interesting because if your argument you made, I think it was last week or two weeks ago about Georgia, Alabama and, and, um, or was it, was it you? Um, but then, my alter ego. Um, it might've been two weeks ago. Um, when we had a guest on, but the fact that the difference between, well, I guess 
the impact of defense um, with David Al. Basically, the Georgia or the the Alabama defense facing Georgia or the Georgia defense facing Alabama. The fact that like you're gonna in these types of games, you end up you end up having some like I mean we we've seen it with Clemson and Alabama in past years where you know these offenses are just so good that they end up like that they end up scoring a gazillion points. Um, yeah. That, oh, that, yeah. I remember, that argument. Now, I'm trying now to remember, I remember what you're talking It took me like forever to figure out what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah now yeah. I remember what you're talking about. Like these teams of the, the teams that like have quote unquote had this amazing defense when they start playing like real competition off offense, their defense becomes like not quite as amazing anymore. And therefore these totals, which are suppressed because of the perception of how good the defenses are become much different once they play against real offenses. Is yeah. that a better way yeah, than when you yes, said it? Way, way better. But so, so I make like I make the total fifty three point one. Um, it's in the Georgia Dome. Um, yeah. Are I you worried about the weather? Very, very. That that okay. roof is on shaky ground. The other, um, I let's see. Yeah, I took San Diego State anywhere from minus four and a half to minus five and a half, and it is now lined at six. Up to six. But I, I mean, I, I'll be honest. I've been low on Utah State. All year. Yeah, we talked about that last week. It didn't work out. I mean, with no prior, I make the line minus eight. With the prior, I make it minus 13 still. So, I mean, um, so I mean, I liked it. I liked it at minus four and a half to five and a half. And I mean, I still show, like, I mean, I I don't have, I I still show a nice edge at minus five and a half, of course. But again, that's going to depend on if, 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 if you think that I'm wrong to use, be that strong on the prior with Utah State, then, you know. Maybe it's only eight, but uh, that's all that I really see value on right now. Um, I took, I actually, Jeff, I, I bet an Alabama money line at Circa. It, I got plus 220. They took 10,000 to win 22,000 on that. It's, I figured that was honestly just a pure derivative play with the line at the time of uh, between six and six and a half. And that's By the way, I, I kind of feel like it, as a Georgia futures ticket holder, that the national championship is this weekend. Like if they win this game and get Alabama out of there, which of these clown teams is going to beat them? No, you're right. Georgia, Georgia is like Ohio State losing means they're sitting pretty because you have th- you have Georgia and then the tier below Georgia is Alabama and Ohio State, and then there's a massive drop off. Like I've Georgia six points better than Alabama, seven points better than Ohio State, but. 14 and a half points better than Oklahoma State and Michigan. So big, big drop off. Yeah. So, so, so if it ends up looking like a, a Georgia, Michigan, Oklahoma State, Cincinnati top four, it really is Georgia's to lose at that point. Yeah. South, South Point has an Alabama plus 230 up there. That's way off market. And I'm guessing they're getting a lot of Georgia action. Um, and they probably want someone to take that plus 230. So Jeff, you need to, you, uh, if I grab some, you want a, you want a piece? You want a little hedge? No, no. Okay. I don't want to have any mental <laughs> hedging. I want to be a big Bulldogs fan going into Saturday. They right, also three, wait, three minutes. Line is also up to seven. They're up to Georgia minus seven. They're the only seven on the board that I see. All right, uh, let's pop quick on NFL. You got any good NFL? We we have uh, last week. I went three and two on the Tony Kornheiser show. This week we don't have a lot. We like. The Niners minus the three and a half. We like the Bills minus the two and a half. And we like the Saints tonight at plus six. And Niners minus three and a half. Bills. I lean Bills. Um, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm hard to disagree on the Niners game. Like, I, I'm Seattle there. Okay. And, um, and, you know, I talked with, um, I talked with Chris this, you know, on, on the segment I do, um, on the Sirius XM fantasy radio, but about that. And it's like Russell Wilson does not look good. We can agree on that. But the question is when, like, will that continue? Will Russell Wilson go back to being regular Russell Wilson? Is there, you know, he, he never missed a game due to injury ever before. And he missed what? Four weeks, maybe ish. And is it rust? I don't know. Is it his finger still isn't, perfectly healthy you know does he just have a grudge against dk metcalf because of 
we don't need to get into that, but I, I, I don't know, but you know, his track record speaks for itself. He's an elite NFL quarterback and uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how to, how much to manually downgrade him. And like, if I feel like if I do, I mean, I guess I don't know what's ca- what exactly is causing this, but I would expect that he's going to continue to get better coming back from the injury. I don't right. know. Any thoughts on that? Because like I, I make the game almost exactly a pick. Like I actually make Seattle like a half a point favorite. Um, I mean, I just I, I don't know. Like we're all impacted by what we recently saw, and I watched a fair amount of that Monday night game, and you know, on, on that last drive, actually, he looked he looked good. He looked like real Russ. So. Yeah, I guess you're right. Like at the end of the day, like it, it kind of depends on how, whether this Niners turnaround is for real also, right? Like there is, they've definitely played a little bit better recently. Um, our numbers, like I said, for whatever reason, like the Niners, it's kind of a black box. Um, do you, do you have anything defense? else in the NFL before we go? Who, who, who do you have as a better defense, the Niners or the Seahawks? Uh, I think we probably have the Niners. Okay. I'm, I'm, um, I had going into the season, I had the Niners as a, better defense I have the so I guess what I'm saying is my prior was a little bit higher on the Niners defense than it was on Seattle's defense yet I have um Seattle is a better defense now if you have anything else in the NFL I gotta go in one minute um I do I have anything else in the NFL I liked the Dolphins um well that moved though what's uh, my big, my biggest position is Miami minus two and a half, and that price there. Well, wow, it's minus four. There must have been some injury that I don't know about. Um, that or blind, just yeah. Um, so those, I mean, I have two positions. I have Seattle. Um, I, I actually bet Seattle before the Monday night game, so I have a, you know, I have a very bad price there. I mean, I have plus three, minus one fifteen, and plus three minus one twenty, and and then I have um, Miami minus two and a half, but I wouldn't bet it now at minus four. All right. I got to run. Thanks for joining us this week, guys. Uh, Sorry it's a little disjointed. It's going to take a fair amount of editing. Um, We'll talk to you guys all again next week, hopefully when um, we'll be able to talk a little bit about the college football playoffs and hopefully it's the Georgia Invitational. Have a great week, everybody. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppet, he's about to end just running off a leaded.